Good morning, church family. It's good to be here. Um, it's been said, but my name is Jordan, and uh, you can usually find me sitting in this sort of front row about where Andrew or Sandra is. Um, and uh, my wife and I, we lead a city group in NDG where we live. Um, I grew up, though, in Hudson, which is about 45 minutes from here, just off the island of Montreal. And I kind of transitioned downtown uh, while going to McGill University studying engineering. Um, today's my first sermon, which means that you have the opportunity to practice two spiritual gifts, patience and long-suffering. <laughs> but uh, first, I will also start with prayer. So, Father, I pray that uh, my words this morning would be infused with your spirit and communicate your love, that you would encourage and equip and challenge and strengthen and draw to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, we are talking about messengers and their message. Um, who here this morning, before they even got out of bed, they scrolled through their phone, check the messages, check their news feed. Probably quite a number of you. Um, according to the research, it's about 60% of you will actually do that even before you get out of bed in the morning. Um, we receive messages every day. They bombard our inbox. They, they you know, shake your phone like I got today, or they, they kind of scream at you from the sides as you rode up the escalator to come into the theater this morning. You might have heard people say that we're living in what's called the, the information age. And what do people mean by that? Well, it's that never before have we been able to receive so much information so quickly from so many sources. So much, so quickly from so many sources. Equally, it's been said about the blogosphere that never has so much been said about so little by so many and read by so few. We live in the age of mass marketing and product evangelists. Not only are you receiving these messages in mass, but we're actually giving them out as well. We might not be hired as a product evangelist, but we all promote, we speak for, we evangelize for those things which we believe are good or true. And evangelist might seem like a kind of strange, dated word, but Everyone is an evangelist. Everyone does this. If, if you're announcing a pregnancy, you're a pregnancy evangelist. I'm, a, I'm an evangelist for the KitchenAid, and my wife still hasn't converted yet. However, in the age of mass marketing and product evangelists, it's easy for messages to lose their meaning. We become apathetic uh, to the content of these messages. How many uh, starving children do I need to read about or terrorist attacks broadcast or new diets out before I, I just I start to tune it out? Or we become apathetic to the content uh, or skeptical. How can we really trust what someone is selling me? Will this skin product really reduce my skin's aging by 10 years? For the Christian, this presents a challenge. How do we communicate the message of the gospel, the good news, in such a way that it pierces through this apathy, this skepticism of our modern age? We have a message too. A message I'm convinced is necessary, is life-giving, is good, 
and is true. Now, that's a big claim. You might be sitting here and thinking, that's, that's what they told me when they sold me Tupperware. <laughs> aren't, or something like, aren't, aren't all religious messengers the same? How could you possibly claim to know the true message? Well, look, if this is something that bothers you, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Please come see me. But for now, I'm just going to say in brief that truth by its very nature is exclusive. In other words, if one thing is true, the other propositions are false. So that even the person who is an inclusivist must exclude the exclusivist. Even the person who says all religions are true is actually excluding any religion that has specific truth claims. What's happening? They're just redrawing the boundaries. They're just moving the goalposts. So now Church 21, what about this message that we carry? Let's examine some of the texts that Sandra read in Luke. Luke has gone about talking to the different eyewitnesses and compiling an ordered historical account of the biography of Jesus. Our text, uh, our text is situated in the town of Nazareth in Galilee, and Nazareth was a Jewish uh, settlement town in a region of largely non-Jewish, what we call Gentiles. And the town was situated about four days' walk from the capital, uh, Jerusalem. And in the sequence, Jesus has bis- just been tempted by John, or baptized by John the Baptist, and then tempted in the desert, and it returns, he says, in the power of the Spirit. So Jesus for us is the messenger, and he's bringing a message to his hometown synagogue. So today we're going to be talking about the role of the messenger, the message of the messenger, and the power of the messenger. So the role, the message, and the power of the messenger. So we'll start with the role of the messenger. So Jesus has begun his itinerant preaching ministry. And we're going to start with a general summary statement in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and they taught in their synagogues, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And then following this, from 16 through verse 30, it focuses in more on a specific significant event. Um, And this is the event where Jesus is in his hometown synagogue. Um, It says that Jesus would regularly attend synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now our context here, a church we want, it's, it's, it's different, but imagine a regular attendee, someone we all knew well, stood up to do the reading um, on the morning. And in this day, Jesus stands up and he reads from the Isaiah scroll. Now, Isaiah was a prophet who lived some 700 years before Jesus. And Isaiah's writings, as well as the other prophets' writings, would have been regularly read in synagogue. Um, this passage was either next in the series of readings they were doing, or Jesus specifically chose it. We don't know. But the passage that Jesus read found, from is found in Isaiah 61 in our Bibles. And this, this passage talks about God bringing his, his mercy and his justice. But why was this event significant enough to be recorded by Luke in his biography of Jesus. Let's look at how Jesus applies the text to himself. 
In verse 21, it says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is how Jesus concludes the reading of the passage in Isaiah. In other words, everything Jesus has quoted from Isaiah is referring to himself. So let's go through the text that Jesus read from Isaiah. So church 21, like Jesus, please scroll to verse 18 on your phone. (laughs) And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up. Uh, in the scroll of the prophet, Isaiah was given him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Um, I'm going to start, uh, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. We're going to come back to this statement but I'll move to proclaim good news to the poor. So here we have the proclamation of good news. This message is good for those who are poor, but what do we mean by poor? If we look at how Isaiah used the word poor, we find that Isaiah talks about those who are poor in spirit, who tremble at the word of God, who are humble before it, those people who feel their need for God. An example would be someone like a tax collector, They're financially wealthy, but they're lacking in what really matters. Think of the one who stands up in prayer and exclaims, God be merciful to me. It is the person that though we might have everything, university, education, health, or maybe just a roof over their head at night, he realizes he has nothing if he doesn't have God. So this is the first role that Jesus claims for himself, the proclamation of good news to the spiritually impoverished. And we move on. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. This is the proclamation of freedom. I'm forgetting about my slides. Um, The proclamation though here, so it isn't just good news to those who are spiritually impoverished, it's good news to those who are oppressed. Isaiah was part of a people group, people who went into exile under the captivity of the Babylonian empire. In Jesus' time, they were under the oppression of the Roman empire. So this, hearing this, would have been, it would have been heard through this lens, the lens of the Roman oppression. Well, spiritual oppression is certainly included here, I want to emphasize that it's not just this that Jesus is referring to. Jesus is talking about bringing justice in a very real sense. And proclaiming freedom is the second role that Jesus claims for himself. We move on. Recovery of sight to the blind. So this is the proclamation of healing. So we have the proclamation of good news, of freedom, And this healing, this is the caring for the physical needs of people, their pain, their sicknesses, even to the point of death. If you keep reading in Luke's biography, you're going to find that the ministry of Jesus was addressing the very real physical needs of people, their pain, their sicknesses. And even to the point of death, Jesus goes around healing the lame, the blind, the paralytic, even raising the dead. Jesus is the messenger who proclaims healing. And we read on to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is in parallel to the statement we've seen above. It's, again, the proclamation of freedom, but there's this other component that's coming in. There's a a justice advocacy, a sort of social action 
in this. To, and we read on, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This again in parallel is the proclamation of good news. But the year of the Lord's favor is, what is that? That was the year of Jubilee. It's every seven cycles of seven, the 49th year was this year where uh, the land was allowed to rest. The prisoners were set free. The slaves were released. Your debts were forgiven. This was the proclamation of political, environmental, and judicial rest. Isn't that amazing? Imagine what that can mean for us today. Political parties in harmony, credit card debt forgiven, a year sabbatical from work, a time to return home and rest with your family, friends, neighbors, and celebrate. This is the type of good news that Jesus is proclaiming. So let's summarize here. So through the Isaiah reading, Jesus is the messenger who's proclaiming good news, freedom, and healing. This is his role as messenger. And while Jesus is the ultimate messenger of God, he calls us, his church, to partner with him in that mission. Is this the role that we as a church are playing as messengers? It's been said that there are two reasons that people are not Christians. The first is that they've never met a Christian. The second is that they have. I want to point out two ways in which our role as messenger is shaped by this text. And the first I'll say, it's a role of word and deed. The church is called to extend the kingdom of God through evangelism in word and through social action indeed. The practical proclamation is different from the verbal proclamation. Think grade school, we did show and tell. So this is what I've brought, I've brought Tweety Bird. And so if it was in grade school, this might've been something that I would've showed and told. Now Tweety the Bird is, I, I loved him dearly. Um, we did tea parties together, he hung out with some of the other birds, Ducky, um, and we ate, and he even came to bed with me. Now, if I hadn't brought Tweety with me, it'd be very hard for you to conceptualize what I'm talking about. Or on the other hand, if I just showed you Tweety with no explanation, it would have been just a stuffed animal, pretty meaningless, right? But showing and telling is much more powerful. Either individuals or whole denominations of churches will focus on social action to the exclusion of evangelism or evangelism to the exclusion of social action. And maybe you've heard this. On one hand, you'll hear, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. But look at Jesus. What if he didn't use any words? We wouldn't know who he was. We wouldn't know why he came. For Jesus, the good news he brings informs the actions he does. It's foundational. And Paul too found words necessary. He says in Romans 10, how then will we call upon him in whom we, they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Or on the other hand, you might've heard, what does it profit if we help a person but lose their soul? Let's just focus on the word and let others who are better engage in the deeds. But again, look at Jesus. He doesn't stay a distant conception, but models our role as messengers and becomes flesh. And he cares for the physical needs of people around him through healing, 
through feeding, through welcoming. His actions are inseparable from his words, his message. So dividing evangelism from social action is like asking, should I stop eating or should I stop drinking? It's a false dilemma. Both are bad options. The church that doesn't preach the gospel will die of dehydration. The church that doesn't engage in social action will die of starvation. Dividing this, what would Paul say? Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Our mission requires both. And Jesus proclaims the good news that is inseparable from social action, word and deed together. And this is the second way. I wanna point out a second way. Our role as messenger is shaped by the text. And that is this, that our role is motivated by love. Let's look again at verse 16. I'm gonna do something with you here. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him, and he unrolled the scroll. Now look at verse 20. He rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down. The eyes of the synagogue were on him. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see how the text is structured? There's a literary form being used. The setting is given, the synagogue stood up, scroll given, scroll unrolled. Then there's this teaching in the center, then the scroll's rolled up, it's given back, he sits down in the synagogue again. What is this? This is a method used in other Jewish texts and it's done to emphasize a certain point. It's, it's a common literary device, it's called an encased parable. Well, why? Well, the encasing is what surrounds the core. It's like the nut inside. It's, it's the meat. It's what you want to pay close attention to. And it's building inwards to the center where it brings the reader to a climax. Illustration, think, think of a sandwich. So from grade one to 11, I eat peanut butter jelly sandwiches every day for lunch. You think I would have gotten bored of them and uh, had BLT or uh, ham and mustard or whatever they call them, different types of sandwiches. But notice a sandwich, a sandwich is named by what's in the center of the sandwich. It's, it's what's in the center that's important and it informs the rest of it. In that same way, well, follow me. Let's look at the center. Let's look at this teaching in the center. The, the Isaiah reading we looked at already, there's another set of parallels here too. We have, on either end, we have the proclamation of good news. Then we have, inside of that, the proclamation of freedom. And at the very center, what's at the center? We have healing. What's the point? Think, when Jesus extends his hand in healing, what does he say? It says he was filled with compassion and he healed the blind, the possessed, the unclean. Time and time again, what is at the center? The center of the sandwich, the climax of the reading is the proclamation of compassion. And what is compassion? It is love in action. The coming alongside, the suffering with, the willing the good of the other. The account was remembered 
in the inauguration, this inauguration of Jesus' ministry was account remembered in Luke's gospel. It's Luke is, this gospel is referred to as the gospel of compassion. Well, why? Think the father in Luke 15, representing God, it is he who has compassion and runs and embraces his estranged son. It is the good Samaritan in Luke 10 who has compassion and risks his own life to save that of his enemy. This is absolutely brilliant. The center of everything is love. Without love, our social action is nothing. Without love, our evangelism is nothing. Without love, my preaching is nothing. Paul now abides faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love must inform and motivate both our social action and our evangelism, our word and our deed. But what does it look like for something other than love to motivate our role as messenger. For me, it's sometimes as simple just as wanting to be right. I wanna demonstrate that the other person in the conversation is false. And so I, I, I wanna show myself to be true, but what am I doing? I'm bolstering my own image. I'm my, building my pride. It's, how do I identify this? It's in these conversations, I find myself caring less about the other person and more about that image of mine. Instead of love, the self-image is motivating me in my role as messenger. In contrast to this, love is willing the good of the other, not myself. So motivated by this love, our role as messengers is therefore to proclaim the good news in both word and deed. But what is this good news that we as messengers proclaim? And so I move on to my second point, the message of the messenger. So we've gone how, over how Jesus' reading was the proclamation of good news, freedom, and healing. But let's spend a little bit more time looking at what Jesus says next. So in verse 21, And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they all spoke well of him and they marveled at the gracious words or you could say the words of mercy that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Now let's turn uh, to Isaiah 61 and two. Now Jesus, remember he's reading from Isaiah 61 and notice where he stops. Let's read Isaiah 61 too, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So interestingly, Jesus stops reading or leaves out this day of vengeance of our God. Well, why does he do that? I want to say it wasn't a mistake. It's not an accident, but this was intentional. Well, why? Because the message of Jesus, which is the message of the church, is that he offers mercy to those who will receive it, taking on the judgment of God we deserve in himself. So the message of the messenger is full of mercy and what's more, this is a message for everyone. Read on. We'll read verse 25. Oh, um, not in the slideshow. Uh, verse 25. But in truth, I tell you that there were many widows in the time of Israel in the days of Elijah. And this is when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine in the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, 
but only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus gives two examples of God extending his grace from the Old Testament. The first is from Elijah, who was sent to a starving woman during a famine. The woman trusts the God of Israel and finds that her food never runs out. But I want you to notice this, that she is a woman, that she is a poor widow near death, and that she is a Gentile. And now look at the second example with Elisha. Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, who is asked to trust the God of Israel for healing and receives it. Well, who is Naaman? He is a man, he's a rich and a powerful leader, and he's a Gentile. Do you notice what's going on here? They're both Gentiles, but the first is a poor widowed woman, and the second, a rich and a powerful man. What's Jesus saying? The message of the kingdom of God is for everyone. It's universal. God's mercy extends beyond an ethnic group to people everywhere who have placed their trust in him. God is not geographically confined and to all who call upon the name of the Lord, he will be their salvation. The message is equalizing and that men and women can worship together in the new covenant family that God has created as equals. Jesus could have chosen men like Moses, like Abraham, like Joseph, but instead his first example is that of a woman. The kingdom of God that Jesus brings is equally extended to male and female, rich and strong, weak and poor, Jew and non-Jew. The message we proclaim is good news to everyone. It transcends all the boundaries that we put between ourselves. Who doesn't want to hear this? This message is actually good. And I think sometimes, you know what? We forget that. We forget it's good. We disbelieve its goodness. And when we disbelieve its goodness, we stop sharing it with others. And so what I want you to do, I want to do is I want to try and recapture a vision of its goodness. Earlier this year, my brother works for a software company and he had to travel on business to Silicon Valley in San Francisco area. And he had some meetings with venture capitalists and then uh, met up with an old high school friend who works at Dropbox. And uh, after dinner, some drinks, they went back to one of his friend's houses, like this extravaganza multi-million dollar mansion. And uh, they had like a gathering of sorts. And in conversation, a conversation came up about identity and finding yourself in your sexuality. And in a sort of uh, sudden expectation, unexpectedly, he said to the whole group, what if your identity wasn't based on something you consume sexually? Like, how reductionistic is that? But what if your identity was based on the fact that you were made in the image of God and that because of that, you had value simply because you exist? He said, a whole room went silent and everybody's looking at him. And then one guy in the corner was just like eyes wide. That's the most incredible thing I've ever heard. Isn't it? Do we forget that this message is actually good? (laughs) On Thursday, my wife Sandra met up with a woman in our neighborhood. This woman is, she's a single mother. She has two kids and she moved to Montreal recently to escape an abusive relationship. She related to Sandra how, over time, the expectations in the relationship had begun to increase and the demands had gotten higher. And at some point, she couldn't meet those expectations anymore. 
her partner in the relationship it had become abusive and painful. So she, she left where she was and she came to Montreal seeking peace and stability. And Sandra spoke to her how she had found peace and stability in relationship with God that even when we don't meet our own expectations, more or less a holy God's expectations, that regardless, God continues to love us. And that rather than put the abuse on us, he takes it in on himself so that we can be accepted in him in right relationship with him and find peace and stability through him. And the lady was quiet and she listened and she said just this. She said, yes, that's exactly what I need. Notice that these two stories speak to two vastly different people in vastly different circumstances. One is a tired single mother living here in Montreal. Another, a wealthy businessman in Silicon Valley. Both. This is relevant good news. But the less listeners of Jesus, they just, they somehow they didn't see this. They didn't think it was good news, but why? And I'm going to add another point. The message of the messenger is also, well, this is a message that's also potent. It seems small, but it has explosive potential. The listeners go from questioning Jesus' identity in his hometown of all places to, it says at the end, being filled with wrath, kicking him out of the synagogue, out of the town, and trying to get him over a cliff. Why did it elicit such this strong response? Well, let's remember that I said Nazareth was a settler town, a Jewish settler town, and a non-Jewish region of, uh, of Galilee. So what do you have here? It's, it, it's, it's a place, it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a town, which, it, which would be like any group, that is seeking to assert its identity. And because of this, it's become politically and religiously self-conscious. Right? And so this is what upset them. First, Jesus, remember, he stops reading before the vengeance of God, which is what the Jews were eager to see inflicted on their non-Jewish neighbors. What words of mercy, they say. Second, that Jesus, he reverses their expectation from receiving to giving. They thought, if you read the rest of this chapter in Isaiah 61, that God was, when the Messiah came, he's going to put them in this position of being honorable, of being prosperous over the people around them. But Jesus has something, he's this audacity to stand up and say, you know what? It's not just something you receive. You partner with me in giving it as, as my messengers. And then finally, the other reason that Jesus, he, he doesn't use Jews as examples of faith. I mean, he could have chosen from everyone from Esther to Abraham. And he chooses the woman from Sidon and Naaman, the, the pagan Syrian. What's he saying? What's Jesus saying? If you want to be part of this new upside down kingdom I am leading, you're going to have to surrender your religious pride and your nationalism. How relevant is this message today? You see how potent it is? Because it confronted and it challenged the ideals that they cherished. For the religious, this is a humbling message. The things that were valuable to them, their idols, the things that they, they built their, their self-worth on, their class, ethnicity, their obedience. Jesus is saying these things do not make them better than anybody else. So the message of the gospel is offensive because it is humbling. Now think, 
in what way has the message of the gospel offended you? What part of your identity does the gospel challenge? It's that part of your identity that you use to distinguish yourself not just apart from, but above others. I come from a respectable family. I have a respectable job. I go to a respectable university. I work for a respectable company. Or I live a morally respectable life. When our value is based on any of these things, we will, by virtue, we will just look down, we will disdain and look down on others as outcasts simply because they're different. Think about it. If, our, if my sense of self-worth is based on my family heritage, I will look down on those who come from families different than my own. If my sense of self-worth is based on how hard I work, I'll look down on those who I think are lazy. If my sense of self-worth is based on how moral I am, then I will look down on those people who I perceive as immoral. The gospel strips us of all those things that we think give us value because we cannot say that we are more valuable or more moral or more worthy than anyone else. Well, how so? Because before a perfect God, we're all on the same level in that we all fail. And so as an outcast, who am I to disdain another outcast? But the gospel is this, that Jesus became the outcast so us so that we, by his grace, might be received into the presence of God. And in this text, we see that Jesus, he's, he's, what, he's cast out of his synagogue, he's cast out of his hometown, and, and there's this murder attempt at a cliff that wasn't successful. But you know what? It alludes to one that was. Jesus was cast out of Jerusalem, murdered outside the gate on a Roman cross. Listen, Jesus who was in with God became outcast so that we who are outcast might become and enter in with God. Jesus now sees you with the acceptance that he sees Jesus as his son, as his daughter. So Jesus offers us an identity that humbles us. Remember, it brings us down. Our value is not based on who we are and what we've done, but who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But there's a paradox here too. While it's humbling, it's also empowering. Do you see how the message we carry has the capacity to humble the proud and also to raise up the weary and the downtrodden? A few years ago, I was on YouTube like I do so often, and I stumbled across a Vice News documentary, and they had done it on someone named Canon Andrew White. He's otherwise known as the Vicar of Baghdad, and he's the vicar of one of the only churches in Baghdad. His church has received uh, threats, bombings, and people in his congregation literally beheaded. And so the vice journalists were there, and they're just like, they want to know what makes this guy tick. And so Canon Andrew White, speaking about his parishioners, said this. He said, they are the most loving people I've ever met in my life. They have nothing, but they have everything because they have Jesus. Jesus, Yeshua, is the center of their lives. And as we always say here, when you have lost everything, Jesus is all you have left. And that's all we've got. They have nothing, but they have everything because they have Jesus. 
the message of Jesus is so potent that even when it's all we have, it's enough. What good news. <laughs> for, look, for many people, their understanding of Christianity is a misunderstanding. Because of this, they miss the goodness of the message that we carry. And it is our task as messengers to proclaim the good news, the simplicity and profundity of it in a way that demonstrates his goodness. And so I wanna wanna look at this last point and that's the power of the messenger. We've looked at the role, we've looked at the message, but what of the power? Jesus, it says in verse 14, returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee. So Jesus has returned from his baptism in which the spirit of God descended and remained. And then in verse 18, it says, Jesus, he stands up to read and proclaims, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Jesus' role as messenger is empowered by the person of the Holy Spirit. And here is more good news, that the same spirit who empowered Jesus' ministry lives in the Christian today, lives in you and I. That through Jesus' cleansing sacrifice, we are made holy so that the spirit of the, the holy God can live in us. This is the power of our message and by the Holy Spirit, God's love is now poured into our hearts and it transforms us from the inside out and it infuses our message with power and love. And sometimes we also need to be reminded of its power, his power. This year, at an event on campus called Uncover McGill, a student told me her story. For her, as long as she could remember, she had this irrational fear of disappointing people around her, whether it was her, her friends, her parents, her teachers, and she said this turned her into an absolute control freak. If something went wrong, if, if she couldn't do something, because she had, it was because she hadn't tried hard enough. As, as she got older, the pressure got higher, and she started turning to unhealthy coping mechanisms. She started self-harming by cutting, uh, through an eating disorder, and some of her friends started to notice and they began to pray for her. And they invited her to, to a talk, um, put on, and it was giving, is a proclamation of this good news. Um, the message of Jesus was presented. And after the talk, a friend came to her and said, can, can I pray for you? And she said, you know, sure, thinking, yeah, that, that night, at home in your room, <laughs> but her, her friend, no, she, she put her hand on her right there and began to pray. And, and she says, uh, in my head, I was, she's, she's, <laughs> in her own words, she says, what the hell is happening? And she says, then as her friend prayed for her, she says, she began to weep and they both began to shake. And she says, she believes that shaking, her friend was so full of the love of God that she could no longer contain it. And that it began to knock on her, her door, the door of her head, the door of her heart. And she's like, it just exuded as no, I just had to receive it. She's like, so I did. And she says, now she's like, <laughs> she says, I know it's cliche, but I feel like a weight has been removed from my shoulders. Instead of the pressure to perform this girl 
she knew that even if she didn't get the way, the A in, in class that she wanted, that God would accept her. And instead of the, the control, she knew that God was in control and that God was sovereign. And I'm not telling you this story to say that knowing God will take away all your problems, that we also struggle, but we, we now have his empowering presence, his spirit with us in that. And I, but I want to see you to see how in this story, that is the power of God that infuses our message. Think of that prayer. As messengers, we're dependent for him to speak through us by his spirit. And as he does this, we will see lives changed. God is in the business of transforming lives and he wants to transform yours. But not only that, he wants to transform the lives of your friends, of your coworkers, of your family, of the city of Montreal. And he's choosing you in that process today. Today, this scripture can be fulfilled in our hearing. It is God breathed, it is alive, it is active. So for the person investigating Jesus here, you can see that what we're talking about here isn't just news, it's good news. And it's a difficult message because it's humbling. It exposes you, it gets to the bottom of us. But it's a good message because it has the power to transform you. Come, taste and see that Jesus is good. So church, how do we communicate this message, this gospel to our modern era? Tell it, infused with love for your hearer. Proclaim it in word and deed and know that this is a message that is backed by the power of God. It is in this power that we have messengers, we attract in and we go out. Think of the two examples that Jesus uses, Elisha, whose God-infused reputation attracted Naaman to come see him. Or Elijah, who was sent out to the widow at Sidon. So we too attract in like Elisha. Church, when the goodness of the gospel is recaptured, it becomes compelling and it draws people in. So go this week and live out the gospel in the power of the spirit. And so we too are sent out like Elisha. This is Christ's commission. Go as messengers this week and proclaim the good news in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'll pray for us that God help us as we go out this week and proclaim your message. Help us to be messengers who are anointed in the power of your spirit, who are shaped by your divine love and proclaim it in both word and deed. Father, I pray that you would infuse our message with the power of your presence. We love you and we thank you for the opportunity for us to be challenged today. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.